Welcome to the Billings PD Unfiltered Podcast, Episode 9. This is Part 2 of 2 of the Public Safety Mill Levy Conversation. I'm Lieutenant Brandon Woolley, and today with me is a City Attorney Gina Dahl. Gina, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And also we have with us today is going to be Director of Planning and Community Service, is uh, Wyeth Friday. Wyeth, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we are continuing the conversation for the upcoming Public Safety Mill Levy. Uh, for our listeners, if you haven't listened to part one, you need to go back and listen to part one first. That's where uh, Chief uh, Rich St. John and Chief uh, Pepper Valdez with the fire department uh, discussed the first portion or the kind of the first half of this public safety mill levy. And they discuss in detail of, of the events leading up to and then kind of where we're at now with the public safety portion uh, and describe that portion of it. And this is conversation with you guys brings in kind of that holistic approach where we're going to talk about uh, the other components of the public safety mill levy, which includes legal and courts and some code enforcement. So, Gina, I'm going to uh, tee you up first and just kind of um, let you talk about the legal and courts and what the current status is with what you're operating in right now. Okay. So, with uh, the legal and courts, I'm mostly going to talk about the prosecution aspect, um, the city attorney's office, and Basically, the city attorney's role is to prosecute, clearly, and the court's role is to hold the offenders accountable. Um, if, you know, we've all heard the stories and the what, what's going on out there right now, offenders know that there's not room in the jail, and they know they're, if they commit offenses, they might not get arrested, they might not go to jail. The same kind of thing is happening with our office, with the prosecution aspect. There are people committing offenses and they're not getting charged. And so they continue to commit those behaviors and criminal uh, offenses continue. That behavior is just a cycle. So um, that's where our office is currently at. That's happening because we're understaffed. We don't have the adequate staffing to prosecute the cases Uh, right now. well, we've been tracking our caseload for, for several years. Um, back in 2016, our office had about 3,800 criminal cases that were opened in our office, and that trend has just dr- dr- increased dramatically over the last several years. It peaked in 2019 at, at over 6,400, dipped down a little bit in 2020. Um, that can only be attributed to the pandemic. I mean, violent crime increased in 2020, even for our office as well. Um, but property crimes and other crimes dipped down a little bit, I think because people were stuck at home at their homes. Um, but in 2021, the numbers are going right back up. At the end of June, we had about 3,000 cases. So by the end of the year, we are anticipating it being over 6,000 cases. Um, open in our office. Now, those numbers I'm talking about are just what the city attorney's office sees, so I'm not really touching on anything with court at this point because their numbers are much larger. I mean, they see everything, so these are just the cases that are coming through the city attorney's office. See, we're just looking at some numbers between 2016 and 2021, but, you know, the chief has talked about before that the crime rate in Billings has been on a steady increase for the last 15 years or so. And so there's really no indication for us that that trend is going to go away without additional resources. And you and I were having a conversation before we uh, turned the recording on. And one of the things that I found was pretty interesting was the caseload ratio 
for how many cases each of your attorneys are. Could you kind of explain how many attorneys you have up there and what kind of caseload they are? And then what is the best practice recommendation? Sure, that, um, that trend that you, that you mentioned. Um, there's, it's also kind of important to note that the police department has in the last decade, I don't, I, I don't recall what year it started, but um, the police department has added officers a pretty significant number um, over the last decade. Well, our office hasn't had a new prosecutor since 2007. Well, well, that's not true. Last year, we finally added a new prosecutor, the first we've had since 2007. So the cases that our prosecutors are handling are, um, the, the caseload is pretty significant. Some numbers that we have right here in front of us that we're talking about, um, just going back a few years, in 2018, our prosecutors uh, carried over 1,400 cases a year, and those are our non-domestic violence cases, um, non-domestic violence prosecutors, that is. So we have, in 2018 and 19, we had uh, four prosecutors, and um, we have one domestic violence prosecutor and the other three were non-domestic violence prosecutors. So they were carrying um, the non-domestics over 1,400. Um, in 2019, the non-domestic violence prosecutors were carrying over 1,800. And the, the one, the sole domestic violence prosecutor was carrying 800 and almost 900 cases in those two years. Now, um, what's significant about that is the American Bar Association has a standard out there for best practices, and it recommends that prosecutors handle no more than 400 cases a year. So as you can see, that those numbers are way more than what the best practices standard is. So we finally added a prosecutor in 2020, and that brought the average caseload down to just over 1,000 for the non-domestic violence cases, um, which, but you can see that that's still two and a half times what the best practice standard is. Um, however, our domestic violence, our sole domestic violence prosecutor in 2020 had over 1,200 cases, so he was carrying you know, three times the best practices standard, which is just really unsustainable. And one more thing I want to note about that, domestic violence cases are really resource intensive, and we try to those are cases are really weighted two to one. So a domestic violence prosecutor should really have half the amount of cases that a non-domestic violence prosecutor has. And as you can see, that's that's not what's going on in our office right now. So I just want to reinforce to listeners because the numbers that you're you're saying are, are quite high for even me just sitting here. Mm -hmm. That one prosecutor is carrying over a thousand cases. And that again is, is it's each prosecutor. That's not a thousand cases for the entire division. It's per prosecutor. Uh, can you speak to the effects on, um, you know, what that does for the cases and and the results for the community? Well, it it really results in um, prosecutors, especially the domestic violence cases, really having to triage a lot of cases, um, meaning they they are really looking at. Oh, who's the worst of the worst, um, having to make some really difficult decisions about which cases are getting prosecuted and which cases are not getting prosecuted. Um, that's a, 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 when you're looking at um, somebody who has assaulted their significant other, you know, which case is worse than the other, that's, that's a real difficult decision to have to make. So those are 
those are the kind of decisions that are having to be made and um, sometimes cases aren't getting aren't getting charged right and i think one of the things for our listeners too is one of the questions we get all the time is is well if there's no jail space then what are what are we doing anyways and i think that uh, that's another conversation and another problem that's being worked on uh, but we still have to make sure that we're doing our part and and working towards those goals would you kind of cover uh, in this safety levy ask uh, what resources the city attorney's office is going to get and, and what that looks like and how they're going to be applied and used to help fix this issue? Yes, the plan is to add additional prosecutors in um, three attorneys um, and some support staff. The, the details of the support staff are um, not as clear. It's likely... Uh, one or two paralegals and some other support staff, likely a victim witness specialist would be among those. Um, it's it, one of the paralegals actually would be dedicated more to code enforcement, and I, I'll let Wyeth kind of touch on that a little bit. But um, the rest of it is uh, to uh, obviously prosecute the criminal cases, uh, provide the better victim services. Um, that's a really important aspect of what we provide and and really is required by state law you know we need to provide a certain level of services to victims and um we're it's it's just not happening at the level it should right now right always to improve and we talked about this in part one where you know we're doing a, a good job with what we can but we're always trying to trying to do a little bit better with more and so what i'm hearing from eugene is is that if we have the ability to reduce the caseload, um, we get some more prosecution, we get some more efficiency, but then uh, along with that comes uh, offender accountability and some uh, reduced uh, recidivism rates. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. Um, if, if uh, Most obviously, if you, if you can't get a case charged, they're not being held accountable. Um, so, sometimes somebody can be there's a certain amount of, of accountability simply in getting a, a person charged with an offense um, if if you can't even get them charged there's no way to hold them accountable um, you know if we if, if we could get some reduced with additional staffing that would just re result in reduced caseloads um, that would just give the prosecutors more time to actually really thoroughly work the case really dedicate the time to the case um, to be able to review the the cases that the police department is sending us, um, get the cases actually charged. The misdemeanors, there's a statute of limitations of one year, and that seems like a long time, but with these caseloads that you're seeing, it's not always happening. We are sometimes missing that statute of limitations, which is really unfortunate. So um, with with improved staffing, we could we could actually... Um, get people charged, which is the beginning of the whole accountability aspect. So piggybacking off the accountability portion, one of the things that we've heard too is that uh, there's a mental health component uh, resource to this public safety mill levy. Uh, and that's a huge drive of a lot of our misdemeanor crimes is the mental health and substance abuse stuff. Now, can you, I know that's not part of the, uh, uh, you know, the court stuff, but there, there were Part of this ask is uh, one additional judge, and you were kind of explaining to me the options. Um, even though that the, there's a small portion of the overall ask for mental health, 
There's also a key component here to increasing to be having one more full-time judge because of the treatment court options and not only comes accountability with uh, the, the criminal actions, but the, the court mandated treatment that the leverage gives to, to kind of solve some of those either substance abuse or mental health issues and give some resources. Can you speak to you know maybe the court stuff and uh, the court treatment programs that we have right now? Sure. The, before I do that, I, I guess I want to mention just another part of the, um, the mill levy ask, which is uh, on the front end, the prevention, the mental health, and the substance abuse. And you may have touched on that on part one when you spoke with the chiefs. Um, but that there is dedicated money to provide to um, mental health services and substance abuse services that's on the front end, prevention, that it's intended to, um, I, I believe that that money will be, will go out as um, grants and the city will partner with different agencies to provide those services on the front end to hopefully avoid and divert them from the criminal justice system in the first place. Um, but w what you've just asked me about is, is another really important aspect. If, if the mill levy passes and an additional uh, court is added and fully staffed with with uh, judge and and all of its staff. It's likely that there will be additional treatment options and additional accountability for a whole slew of additional offenders. Because right now our municipal court has three treatment courts: one's a DUI court, one's a drug court, and one's a co-occurring court, which addresses substance abuse um, issues as well as mental health issues. Um, those are really lengthy programs and very intensive programs um, that offenders enter into that anywhere from 12 to 24 months. I think an average is about 18 months to get through that program, but it really addresses the underlying issues for an offender's behavior. Uh, you know, crimes are often committed because of mental health issues or because of substance abuse issues or their behavior is somehow correlated to those issues. And so until those underlying issues are addressed, they're just going to continue to uh, offend. And so treatment court is, and our treatment courts are very successful. Um, it, we have actually, we, our recidivism rate exceeds national grant standards, actually. So we're excelling in reducing recidivism, particularly um, amongst individuals who have both mental health and substance abuse disorders. So if we, if the mill levy passes and an additional court is, is fully staffed, that will just open up the potential for one, two, or three more treatment court options and uh, addressing uh, another population of offenders. So I think what you just kind of described is really important, and I want to kind of resummarize that for the listeners because uh, the there's a large topic of conversation about mental health and the money being put towards prevention and stuff like that. Uh, we do live in a free country, and, and that prevention portion of it is for those um, struggling with substance abuse or mental health issues that are willing to take the help that is voluntary. Um, once we have the social disorder that occurs and results in criminal activity or blight or other stuff in the community, 
uh, it's these treatment programs that give that accountability to order treatment as part of a sentencing agreement or part of that stuff. So it really uh, holds their feet to the fire, whether they really want to participate or not. It gives them a really incentive, just them above and beyond them just volunteering. So uh, to us and where we're sitting in these chairs, it's a crucial component to what you were just describing as the recidivism rates. Absolutely. That kind of takes us over to, to you, Wyeth. Um, quality of life, um, you know, low level offenses, um, you know, the broken windows theory was with neighborhoods, um, abandoned vehicles, uh, code issues. And what we often see is where there's areas where there's lots of code issues that eventually there's lots of crime that occurs in those areas. And so the, the other component to this, Milevi ask, is, is for some code enforcement officers. So can you kind of explain you know, where we were at before this and, and why that's a crucial component? Sure, yeah. So yeah, code enforcement, uh, as you said, really is uh, a key part of this um, and a key part of keeping the community you know, cleaner, safer, and keeping neighborhoods stabilized by trying to address um, the, the violations and things that occur that start to usually continue, you know, degrade a neighborhood and start to create bigger problems, which gets you to eventually, you know, um, often criminal issues later. So a lot of our current code enforcement division, uh, we have three officers uh, who are assigned to different areas of the city, basically broken up into thirds uh, for the whole city. And um, one officer who's just focused on uh, the really problem properties, the abandoned buildings, burned out buildings, uh, structures that are uh, unsafe and and usually then also those are the properties where we end up in court and there's a lot of time that has to be spent so that officer spends uh, his time mainly in that area while the other three are dealing with all the other types of complaints and you named a few things everything from abandoned vehicles uh, to uh, weeds you know people not taking care of their property people blocking fire hydrants clear vision areas uh, junk just in store outside stored in in yards and in front yards backyards etc uh, trailers on the street, trailers on uh, people's property, um, you know, in their front yards and stuff like that. So we're dealing with all those types of things right now. And it's, and we're, we see about 4,500 to 5,000 cases a year. And it's all about basically right now responding to those complaints and, you know, those cases and trying to address those uh, throughout the city. And really it's, it's very reactive. So we're, we're not able to uh, really kind of step back much and look at the bigger picture or see where, wow, we're seeing a lot of you know, problem areas in the community and neighborhoods where we could really spend some time and try to address them on a wider scale. It's very much right now going uh, case by case and just dealing with those complaints and trying to address those things. And what ends up and has been happening with that, which is challenging, is that certain properties get really into bad shape before they come to the attention of code enforcement, you know, neighbors. Uh, finally complain, they get fed up. And then by the time we're at that point, um, then criminal activity and other things have potentially already started in some cases. And so you've already got then police involved, potentially things that are uh, uh, you know happening. And we're kind of then trying to back up and get things back to where they should be. And we, we're not in there kind of in the early stages. So that's that's kind of what our, our current situation is with our with our current setup and trying to address those things just kind of as they come at us. Um, and so with the, with the levy, basically, pro as it's proposed, it would help to give, bring up code enforcement some resources where we would be able to look more at 
being a little more proactive and being able to deal with some of those things earlier on. And one of the things I, I bring up with this uh, because we've been asked quite a bit is a lot of people envision proactive is like, oh, we're gonna be out patrolling around basically just looking for, for violations. And really it's gonna be more using the um, information, the case data, and um, the different types of complaints we're getting and being able to say, okay, we're seeing that there's an increase in you know, more junk vehicles in this part of town. And so, and across a lot of violations. And so we could, we would, with this proposal, with the additional resources, which would include some uh, additional, three additional code enforcement officers, be able to take a couple of officers and spend some time just on that type of issue for a while and be able to address it kind of front on instead of just reacting to each complaint that we would get and being able to look at an area and say, okay, yeah, we're seeing a lot of this activity. What can we do education-wise? What can we do by having them spend some time just in that neighborhood trying to get that, that issue resolved to then keep us from kind of you know sliding further down into an area where that neighborhood then is having more problems and it's losing stability basically is what kind of starts to happen. You, you have a few houses or a few properties that start to really get run down and have problems and then pretty soon it starts to drag kind of the, the neighborhood as a whole. So if we can have some resources to do that and to get in there earlier, then that starts to prevent those things from getting so far um, kind of out of hand before then. So just so I heard you right, you've got three current code enforcement officers and you're handling anywhere between 4,500 and 5,000 complaints per year. Uh, that's a significant amount and I think for most of the citizens in the community, code enforcement is probably one of those last things that's on their mind until it's their neighbor or that problem house. And we see um, with a lot of our drug houses, flop houses, uh, a lot of times code enforcement and the criminal activity in that neighborhood, especially if you see like a hot spot with crimes, lots of burglaries, lots of vehicle thefts, you drive through that neighborhood and you see lots of uh, other code enforcement issues like abandoned vehicles. Uh, we recover a lot of stolen vehicles in, in those areas as well. Uh, so you guys are asking for or three code enforcement officers to be more proactive? Correct. Yeah, three more officers. Uh, and then it also would include some additional budget for uh, this the sort of neighborhood cleanup, neighborhood focus I was describing. We've done just to back up from a few years ago, we did try a couple of kind of pilot programs where we did what we called neighborhood uh, cleanups, where we went in and said, okay, we're not just looking at the violations on the private property. We're also looking at the the issues. You know, do we have street lights that are out? Do we have alleys that need to be graded and cleaned up? You know, that's that's a, a city issue that needs to be improved. Do we have other, you know, broken sidewalks, things that, that again, contribute to kind of that bigger issue of the neighborhood stability. And so we went in to a couple of areas and, and we, it was very challenging because we had to basically kind of stop doing some of the day-to-day -day just to spend a little bit of time on that. So that's where this the, the levy uh, resources could help us add that and keep and keep addressing the complaints we have. But we went into those areas did some of that both public infrastructure, public street um, cleanup, and then also worked with the property owners where they had violations. And were able to see, to your point, that after that was done, um, the case, the complaints you know, went down. We actually worked with law enforcement in that situation too to see that some of the criminal complaints and, and issues went down in those areas too and stayed relatively uh, more stable for several years after that. And so I think that's one of these strategies with this approach is if we could be able to focus some time and energy in those areas, we could you know, slow some of those areas and, and address that so you're not having it kind of continue down that path. 
Can you talk a little bit about these safe routes for kids and seniors mm-hmm. as part yeah. of that? Yeah, yeah. Another another area that's really important is, um, and we deal with a lot of these complaints too. Is uh, in the wintertime, people aren't shoveling their walks, uh, which is making it dangerous for kids that are trying to get to school and also other pedestrians, including seniors that are trying to navigate the the sidewalks around their neighborhoods. And then also we have issues with branch, tree branches, shrubs, things that block the sidewalks, block stop signs, block intersection views. And that again, adds to some safety concerns for uh, when kids are trying to get to school or when people are using the the, the sidewalks and such. And so one of the areas uh, too is again, being able to focus in on some of these areas where there's separate analysis that the city engineering division and our transportation planning uh, group is doing with safe routes to school, looking at where where are kids the most um, using the sidewalk routes the most to get to their elementary schools and, and things like that. And so part of what we could do with the with the added resources with the levy is say, okay, let's take that information, knowing where the most uh, a lot of that pedestrian traffic is, and go and make sure that it is clear, the path is safe, the sidewalks are you know shoveled the branches are cut and things like that so that they have a safe pathway to go to school. So that's an additional uh, piece again that we could do with being able to have an, you know, where we could have one of those new officers spend some time in that area. Um, and then also education wise is, is really important too, trying to educate both the neighbors in an, in the neighborhood, the task forces, other groups to say, these are what, this is what code enforcement does kind of to your earlier point about, you know, people not always knowing what, what it is, or, or, you know, it's only important to them at that moment when it's right in, in their face kind of, but understanding like, oh, this is something that's a code enforcement issue. I should call them and, and have this address. So we get more education out there. So people know when that's the, the right thing to do and, and who, who to call and what they're asking about. So, you know, that's, that's all great information. Um, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, you know, you got, three code enforcement officers who are handling anywhere between 4,500 and 5,000 calls. Gina, you've, you've got five prosecutors and each one of them is carrying over a thousand cases per year. Um, and it, clearly there's numbers showing that, you know, you're two and a half times and for your domestic violence investigator or uh, attorney, three times the amount of the, the caseload. So my question for you, Gina, would be, um, what is if if the if the safety levy doesn't go through? What's the course of action? What does that look like going forward? Well, to give you kind of to to sort of circle back a little bit to to what's currently happening, um, I think it would be a it'd be more of, of what's currently happening, which is this: our domestic violence prosecutor. I mentioned that he has he's getting over twelve hundred cases referred to him by law enforcement. So he only has the capacity to, to file a certain amount, to actually prosecute a certain amount. And that's anywhere from 500 to 600 cases. So back in 2015, that was about 90% of what you guys were sending us. You know, law enforcement would send, send him 575 cases. He, could, he prosecuted 515 that year. Uh, that's about 90%. So the domestic violence cases are continuing to increase. We're getting more and more every year. They're, they f- have gone up from 2015 to 575 to over 1,200 last year in 2020. And he still only has a certain capacity. You know, he can only f- file anywhere from five to 600, like I said. And last year, he was able to file 565 of those 1,200 cases, which is less than 47%. So what that means is 
less than 50% of the domestic violence cases that are reported are getting prosecuted. That's a pretty significant number and compelling number that, that should speak to the public. That That's what would just continue to happen, I think. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer would be. And the, and the reason why I asked that question is um, we're not able to advocate and tell people how to vote. It's our job to just educate them with the, you're the subject matter experts. You're the ones who are running the organizations or the divisions that are having to deal with this. And I always ask that question because um, you're in the best spot to provide some education information about what it looks like in real time from, from your chair. Wyeth, what, what do you see? Same question to you is mm-hmm. if it doesn't happen, what's, what's your answer? Yeah, and, and really we'd be, you know, it's, it goes back to that issue of, you know, sort of the proactive versus reactive situation where we would be continuing to um, just handle those complaints as they came in and, and not have that um, capacity to try to kind of get, get in front of some of the really problem properties and problem areas uh, that, that start to happen in town. So it, it, and again, that starts to snowball into um, with, as I mentioned before, with, with the law enforcement side too, is then we're not getting ahead of some of those properties where then the criminal activity starts to, to get in there and, and more problems or the, the building gets caught on fire and we have the fire department there. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen with those abandoned and those structures. So it starts to just keep that perpetuate that and so that the the demand on everybody's service you know the services that we're talking about here with the with the levy um continue in that situation where we're just responding and trying to just keep up with those complaints so it doesn't yeah it's not a it's not a great um kind of view and and it's and it's challenging especially because the expectations from the community have seemed to have really increased and so there's this want and need to have more response and more of those things addressed. And then we would be unable to really do that to the level that I think people are expecting. I think Chief St. John kind of puts it best when he's uh, talking about this is at some point in time, we, we tap out on resources and then the question becomes, what don't you want us to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of a good jumping off point. We've covered everything pretty good in a, in a summary. Uh, any last parting comments that you'd like the listeners to hear before we uh, step out on the podcast here? The only thing I wanted to add, because and Gina mentioned it during her discussion on the legal, was that part of the resources also that would help code enforcement with this with the proposed levy is some additional help from the legal department. We have huge, you know, participation and help with from them. Uh, to the capacity that they can do right now. And we have we have cases that go to court, go to municipal court, and in some cases go to district court. So this does uh, this proposal does include some additional help um, from the legal side to help our code enforcement officers prepare cases and prepare to, to go to court and be more successful. They're not trained, you know, in the in sort of those nuances of of getting cases together in the legal side. And so we need that advice and direction in some of those areas. So that that's just something else to keep in mind that this would help us. And again, if those are successful, then we get those properties dealt with that much better uh, versus us having, you know, challenges in court. And then obviously those properties can stay in a, in a bad, you know, bad shape for longer. Right. Gina, any last comments? I would just say that the voters need to, to educate themselves. They need to get involved they need to take a look at the plan they need to take a look at the presentations Um, there's a lot of information out there a lot of really good information that that tells them what's going on Um, particularly for my office uh, you know 
we want to serve the victims as best we can, um, but we're kind of tapped out and, you know, we can only serve so many people. So we hate to have to make those kinds of decisions, who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. And so um, it's just really important for the voters to take a look at the the information that's out there and ask questions and just educate themselves so they can make good educated decisions. So a great place for listeners to get uh, information. You can go to the City of Billings website and uh, look at the public safety mill levy portion. There's uh, the slideshow presentations. There's pamphlets about how much it costs, uh, what the resource breakdowns are. Uh, you can also go to the Billings Police Department Facebook page where there's an archived live event with Chief St. John. And then uh, listen into part one of two for this to hear directly from the division heads on uh, what their ask is for and the resource and how they're, uh, how they're going to use them. Uh, that'll be the end of the podcast. Thanks for uh, listening for those who stayed all the way through. Until next time. Thank you.